You're listening to Don't Waste Water. For $500, you get something which rejects less than 25% of the water coming into it and actually performs a lot better than any of the other systems and has all kinds of sensors and stuff like that telling you what you're actually consuming. So why did this happen? It's because a lot of consumers who could afford it started going there and asking for this. And I think that's the kind of thing that will start changing things more rapidly than anything else. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. It's difficult to maintain this infrastructure. The cost of maintaining it is not borne fully by the people. And as a result, there's deferred maintenance and it breaks. And then since the cost of replacing all this is huge and there's no subsidy available to do that, this just gets worse and worse and worse. I'm your host, Antoine Valter. And in today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Upanulal as my guest. We realize that once you look at the existing systems, around 70 to 75% of the cost is actually in the pipes and pumps, not in the treatment and not in the storage. So you look at that and say, well, these pipes are failing and they cost half a million a mile to replace and people aren't willing to do that replacement. So they're putting, you know, band-aids all over the place. Should we keep doing that or is there a different way of approaching that? Upmanu is the director of the Columbia Water Center at Columbia University in New York. I can turn around, install a wastewater treatment system and then a reverse osmosis system after that so I could get water which I know of a very high quality and I can do that or a per unit cost which is less than what you are charging me. The Columbia Water Center is on a mission to creatively tackle the water challenges of a rapidly changing world where water and climate interact with food, energy, ecosystems and urbanization. Over the past two years, governments around the world have announced unusual water infrastructure investments with, for instance, $111 billion in the Infrastructure Act in the US. All of that triggered a sizable 3% to 4% yearly increase in investments in that sub-segment of the water sector. But there's a cooler kid in town, decentralized or distributed water treatments, which grow at three times that pace. Let me repeat that. We see unprecedented investments in centralized infrastructure and yet investments in their decentralized counterpart grow three times faster. That honestly gets you thinking. Does the centralized push arrive too late? You'll hear me asking that to Upmanu in even straighter terms in just a minute when I'm asking if we're pushing a dead beast. I think the question is worth asking when you hear Upmanu deconstruct why these radically decentralized water treatments trump central infrastructure on nearly every level. We might well enter the post-utility era, or at least an age that's thus far from the model we imagined at the turn of the 19th century, or in the sewers of Babylonia 5,000 years ago, that water and wastewater utilities will have to seriously reinvent themselves. And as we've already discussed with Seth Siegel on that microphone, I see good and bad in that new normal. Now, if you ask me, I'd rather advocate for a slightly lighter disruption as the one Upmanu describes, where decentralized treatments still happen at community or building level rather than under the sink. But that's just my two cents, and I'm pretty sure I never got a scientific citation when Upmanu draws on almost 18,000 for his extensive work on the topic, 
which makes him kind of the definition of an expert. So without further ado, I let you dive into the nuggets he shares with us. Well, wait without further ado, yes, but not without reminding you that if you like what you hear, you can make some of your friends, colleagues or LinkedIn contacts the best Christmas present there is by sharing and recommending them this episode. If you wonder how I attract someone the caliber of Upmanu on that microphone, well, it's a one-stop trick. It's thanks to these recommendations. You have that power. I'm so grateful when you use it. So please do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Upmanu. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you today? It's interesting because I'm hosting the host. I'm here in your house somehow. What is the Columbia Water Center? The Columbia Water Center got established in 2008, and the idea was to, from an academic perspective, study issues related to global water sustainability, specifically with the idea that we would start solving problems. Because a lot of academia studies what's going on and reports on the problems, but not so much on what we can do to actually change that situation. Hence, rethinking water. So you're looking for solutions, but that has to start with identifying the problems. And what are the most pressing challenges? So water is one of those most interesting things in the sense that the number of problems that people bring to you is unlimited. If you pay pay attention to the way the UN presents the situation, it's a water sanitation health issue. We have people who don't have access to clean water. We have people who don't have access to the ability to discharge wastewater. So these are the most publicized problems associated with water. If you look at it from a sustainability perspective, people start talking to you about scarcity and places where people are no longer able to grow crops, obviously then don't have access to water as such also. These are things that I think get well publicized. The fact that even in places such as the United States, people have these issues today, similar to what perhaps were experienced in the 1920s and they're unsolved. That comes as a bit of a surprise sometimes, but maybe there are not so many such people. Water issues also mean floods. Water issues also mean that we will have droughts in a place that is normally well stocked with water. In that context, We had a few years ago, Cape Town and Rio as day zero, so they got a lot of publicity. But it's not that easy for people to connect to these issues in their own life because they seem remote. Jakarta, with a lot of pumping, is now going to be replaced by a new city because it sank. Oh, that's interesting. It's Jakarta. It's not happening here. Well, it is happening in California. It is happening in Houston. It's happening in various places. We just don't realize that sometimes. So one of the things as an academic institution is, yes, we want to bring the collection of those problems together. Think about what are the ways by which we can solve them. And solution here means something that 
is technical, something that is financial, and then how is it going to be implemented and stay fixed? Not that, you know, somebody flies in, has a flashy thing, and then a couple of years later, there's nothing to show. It's an academic field in that sense, because what we are studying is the diagnosis of the problems all the way through to sustainable solutions uh, from an interdisciplinary perspective. And that's what we do at the Columbia Water Center. So when you say you have to rethink water, so how does that translate into facts? Yeah, so let, let's take one example because it's useful to actually get specific on these things. So the way our urban water infrastructure is designed nowadays for the last century has been dominated by what are called centralized systems. And what is meant by a centralized system is that typically you may have one large water treatment plant, one large reservoir, one large well field. And these are all where you collect the water, store the water, treat the water, and then it's piped to every place where it is needed. On the return side, because most of this water in an urban setting, maybe 90% of the water actually is not evaporated or lost. So it's brought back as wastewater. And so that's in large sewers. It's pumped to a central location, treated there to some standard which would meet environmental needs, and then discharged. A city that's downstream of that location perhaps picks that up, treats it some more, and supplies it to the people. So this is kind of the structure that we have developed. It's difficult to maintain this infrastructure. The cost of maintaining it is not borne fully by the people. And as a result, there's deferred maintenance and it breaks. And then since the cost of replacing all this is huge and there's no subsidy available to do that, this just gets worse and worse and worse. So that's a situation, that's a problem that's evolved over time. There was nothing wrong with the original thinking perhaps because they were recognizing that there were economies of scale in building one large treatment system, economies of scale in building a large reservoir because you don't use up as much land as you would, you would for storing the water in many places and you won't hire as many chemists as you would need to run treatment plants in lots of different locations. So the rethinking today is that we realize that once you look at the existing systems, around 70 to 75% of the cost is actually in the pipes and pumps, not in the treatment and not in the storage. So you look at that and say, well, these pipes are failing and they cost half a million a mile to replace and people aren't willing to do that replacement. So they're putting, you know, band-aids all over the place. Should we keep doing that or is there a different way of approaching that. And today, one thing that is different than in the beginning of the 20th century is that we have a lot of digital information that we can gather using sensors and actually even control our infrastructure systems remotely. You don't really need 10 chemists at 10 treatment plants and 10 pump operators at 10 pumps to do this. We can do all this remotely. And when we look at things such as Flint, Michigan, where people are talking about lead pipes and so on, what we learn there is that really there was no excuse for these people to be drinking water which contained lead for two whole years before someone made a story out of it. We should have been able to sense that. We should have had sensors at the point of use which told us this was what was going on. So once you realize that and you say that, hey, I really would like to have in my kitchen where I drink the water, something that tells me it's okay or it's not okay. I don't need to know the details of 50 types of analyses. I just need to know yes or no. Yeah. If I could do that, then if I could put in a treatment system just in my kitchen and at the output of that, I could see that this was okay, that's fine. I don't need my shower water. I don't need my toilet water treated to the same standard as my kitchen water. So the rethinking now goes to, okay, if this becomes feasible, then 
maybe the wastewater that I'm generating, that could be treated and reused also. Maybe not just at my house scale, but maybe in my neighborhood scale. And if that is possible, I'm really shooting for a much higher quality of service and safety for myself. But this is going to cost. Where do I save the money? Oh, I could save the money on not having these giant pipes bringing all of this stuff to me. Because if I can deal with more localized systems, the smaller pipe would cost a lot less. And indeed, it turns out that this story is true. So that's one concrete example of how we are rethinking what our infrastructure system today looks like, how it has evolved and where it needs to go. But that is maybe beyond rethinking, that is disrupting, because yes. basically you're saying the central utility time is over. Yeah. Let's go to distribute it and let's go to water feed for purpose. Hence the specific filters yeah. for drinking water and maybe different types for the washing machine. So. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, this was one example. If I talk about floods, we have other examples. So what's happening today is that a lot of environmental groups are pushing the idea that we should do green infrastructure for flooding. We should use nature to control this. Historically, what did we do? We built levees, we built you know, big dams to control flooding. So this is going in the other direction. And in reality, if you think about it, there's merit to both ideas. Because if you have a very extreme event, there's no way that nature-based solutions are going to win. There's a limited amount of effectiveness that you can have. So nuisance flooding events, moderate flooding events, you, you could probably reduce the impact of those. But then you need something which is bigger. If you build only the bigger thing, then you have a huge expense. You have a dislocation of people. That's not a a great idea either. So how do you combine those two? And then the third piece there that comes up is what about insurance? So what people do is that they think about insurance, but the government subsidizes that insurance. So people live there and that overall increases the risk. The insurance company doesn't really give you credit for having flood risk reduction associated with it. So if you start thinking in a new way and it's being done at a community scale or at a city scale, now we have to start thinking about where are we going to give permits to people to actually locate? What should be located there? So that's a zoning issue. In combination with that, if we are going to build infrastructure for flood control, where is it most effective? And where are we going to put in a nature-based solution? And where are, we, where are we going to put in something that takes up land, which could be used for other things? So this combination of approaches has to bring together landscape architects. It has to bring together people who are going to develop real estate for a joint solution. One of the imperatives that is going to drive these kind of things is that even where we already have uh, buildings and we have infrastructure and things are exposed, that exposure is changing very rapidly with climate change, with sea level rise and with, with very dramatic changes in flood potential. In the urban setting, floods are manifest through sewers and floods are manifest through rivers overflowing. So those mm -hmm. are the two dynamics. Last October in New York, eight people died from basements being flooded because the sewers could not contain the water from the storm. Part of this was because the storm was extraordinary, but not unprecedented. Part of it was because the sewers were blocked. So these sewers, even though they may have been over-designed at some point, they have not been maintained. So they're choked, they have trash in there and it, they had not cleared it. So as a result, we look at this situation and we say, okay, this was a one-off situation. But if you think about this in the long run, how should we be rethinking this? Clearly in a place like Manhattan or Queens, there's not that much opportunity for nature-based solutions. You, you cannot create new parks. You can capture a certain amount of water on people's roofs, but what do you do with it then? Maybe we can use that water. But still, there's a limit to what you can do with that. Mm -hmm. So in this situation, are we going to tear up the streets and put in big sewers? 
or are we going to put in a maintenance solution such as robots that regularly clean these? Obviously, that's one of the things we have to be considering. We don't have storage in a place like Manhattan, but we have an extensive sewer network, which is large pipes. If you think about storms, the storms move from south to north, or the storms come in from the east and go to the west. So if we were to start thinking about where is the water coming into the sewers and where is it going, Montreal has already done some experiments where they have gates and pumps. The sewer system itself is being used for storage. So where at the moment we don't really have that much rain coming in, water is pumped from other areas to those sewers mm -hmm. and around in other ways. So we have to start thinking about more active rather than passive solutions is the idea. Part of the diagnosis is to measure how many people might be at risk. And if I recall right, you've been researching the number of Americans exposed to potentially bad infrastructure. If I'm right, you found out that 63 million Americans are exposed to these bad conditions, which makes about 20% of the population. This is an interesting question because depending on what you look at, the number of people exposed obviously will be quite different. Right now, I would say there are about one fourth of the population is exposed to something to do with drought. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, we had major supply chain issues that emerged because of inability to go get people to work and to do things of that sort. During the drought and flood combination with the pandemic, we have seen that much of the agricultural productivity has suffered, but more the mobility of goods has suffered in the process. If I look at it from that perspective, the fact that cherries that come from California normally in the summer cost around $3 a pound in New York. This summer, it's been $7 or $8 a pound. If you get what I'm driving at, it's not 63 million. The entire country's population has been impacted by that particular event because financially, the affordability of the kind of things that they are used to and the quality of life has been impacted. When you're making this scenario, where we might be going more distributed, we might leverage nature-based solution when possible, and when not possible, we might go for more uh, gray engineering approaches with the pumping of the sewers. How much of that gets then executed in the fact, and how do you at the Columbia Water Center help those ideas become true? The amount of new ideas that get executed varies, obviously. This is a very slowly evolving sector. I think that is true. On the other hand, as the needs grow, so does the speed of solutions. And we have reached a point where most of our infrastructure in the United States is now quite old. So something has to be done, and the climate trigger is accelerating that time frame. So I think things will change. What I will say is that we have worked around the world on every continent at this point, including Australia, and clearly things change at very different rates in different places. Much of the water story is in the public sector, so it really depends on how effective the public sector is in different places. The country that I'll call out is China. The rate at which interesting solutions and innovative solutions are being implemented in China is really impressive. And I think just as the world looked to America in the 20th century for you know, being the standard bearer for what should be done, if we don't really move here, China will be the standard bearer. Things are changing so rapidly in China that I would say even up to five or 10 years ago, they were looking at American companies to come in and do whatever it was that they needed services for. But just as is the case with electronics, you know, so we look at Apple products being made in China and people talk about how the Chinese are very good at copying uh, IP and other things from the US. All that may be true, but at the same time, the indigenous innovations that are coming out of China, especially in deployment, 
of technology are truly remarkable. You know, if you look at electric vehicles, we have the Tesla story, but in China, there are 40 or 50 Tesla-like stories, including vehicles that are very small to vehicles that, that are very large. And they are on the ground. They are being sold and they are being deployed at prices at $3,000 on up to $100,000. So the scale of innovation and deployment, you know, in that kind of a governance system is quite remarkable. I expect that the world will have no choice but to emulate that. So have five years plan and having ambitious targets which say COD might not be higher than 50 milligrams per liter. I do know it's the strictest worldwide, but still, let's do it. The way I've been approaching this when I give talks is, so for example, I learned quite a lot from Professor Jeffrey Sachs when he was the head of the Earth Institute here. One of the things he did was setting the Millennium Development Goals. And his point was that if you don't set quantitative targets, you don't know really what you're trying to achieve. You're just talking. I have taken that and it's very difficult to say what should be a quantitative target for what in different places. So I've translated that to the following. If you are a consumer, because ultimately that's what this is about. It's not about a government agency doing something for some reason. It's about the ultimate user of the water and the person who wants to be protected from the flood. What are your aspirations? You should say them out clearly. If you say that I should be drinking water which has no contaminants at all and I want to be able to measure it, you should state that as an aspiration and say, I want that for the same price as I pay for water now, which is not safe. That sets a target. And if enough consumers say that, there will be someone who'll step up to do that. And this is happening from the private sector today. And I think that some of it is great. Some of it will have to change. One example I'll give you there is five years ago, if you went to Amazon and you wanted to buy a reverse osmosis filtration system for your kitchen, you were looking at spending $500 for the unit and you would buy filters separate. It would reject two thirds of the water you put into it as waste. Relatively low pressure system, not that great. Mm -hmm. Today, if you go to Amazon, there will be more vendors than you saw five years ago. And for between 100 to $200, you'll get a system exactly like that with one years of filters included. And for $500, you get something which rejects less than 25% of the water coming into it and actually performs a lot better than any of the other systems and has all kinds of sensors and stuff like that telling you what you're actually consuming. So why did this happen? It's because a lot of consumers who could afford it started going there and asking for this. And I think that's the kind of thing that will start changing things more rapidly than anything else. So when we are further developing or trying to fix the global infrastructure, we are pushing a dead body because that's not where I'm being extreme here just to try to. Yeah, to... no, no, I think you're right uh, in some ways. The very first thing we talked about in this conversation was the centralized large infrastructure versus a decentralized. It's not clear that an existing utility that operates that centralized infrastructure is very excited about changing. If we keep pushing on people who are doing that, it's not clear that you're going to go anywhere very easily. If you start from the consumer end and the consumer says, what you're giving me is crap, I'm paying $100 for it, I can turn around, install a wastewater treatment system, and then a reverse osmosis system after that, so I could get water, which I know of a very high quality, and I can do that at a per unit cost, which is less than what you're charging me. Hmm, I'll pay you for the incoming water because I can't generate that unless by, I do some rainwater harvesting myself, which maybe someone will start doing. And uh, I'm changing the game. Now, where is the revenue for this dead beast 
the large infrastructure guy going to come from in that situation? They will not like it. They will not like you to enter into that game. However, that game is happening slowly. Whether well, it is happening through people outsourcing the water supply or it's happening through innovation is the question. It's, it's yeah. even happening more than slowly because if you look at the, the curves for the investment in bottled water in the US compared to utility yeah. water, I mean, next year, bottled water will outperform utility waters. That means already today in the US, you would be spending more on bottled water so than utility water. In India, at this point, there is no household which is middle class and above that does not have a reverse osmosis system in their kitchen. That's how it has become. Okay. And the reason for that is, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, we had water metering. I lived in a city that was at a very high standard. It was designed by La Corbusier. And so, you know, it was modern India in, a, in effect. The quality of water supply was high, Western standards, and the, uh, the bills were, you know, there. Today, that same city gets two hours of water in the morning and two hours of water in the evening. There's no way you can maintain the quality of the supply with intermittent supply. So everybody has these. Those people tell me that one reason they are in this situation is when they propose to raise rates, people protest. So if they don't have more money, they cannot improve the system. So yeah. their solution is we'll just shut it down most of the time because then I lose water. So you ask, why are people not willing to raise rates? Because the rate you're charging them is ridiculously low. Well, we don't understand. People just don't want to pay for water. So you go and do some informal sampling. The answer you get most often is, well, this is really poor service. Why would I pay for something that is such poor service? So it's a catch-22. Right? In a circle. And that's what I'm seeing is that as the service quality here deteriorates, people's willingness to pay will go down because we have seen that in India. And then they start relying on alternate solutions. I think this dead beast that we are talking about will have to deal with this sooner or later. Well, Upman, we have so many more questions, but I have to be cautious every time you're right. the host here. Yeah. You no, probably thanks have. and uh, <laughs> wonderful. Thank you for the conversation. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.